This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we're offering five conversations from Episode 7, our review of the new AASLD NAFL practice guidelines with Ken Cousy. Plus, from the vault, Conversation 59.3 from Season 2, in which we discussed a then-recent article from Jeff Lazarus and Jorn Schottenberg titled Advancing the Global Health Agenda for NAFL. This conversation starts with Ken Cousy introducing the new guidance by placing it in the context of the last five years of thinking about screening and treatment of fatty liver patients. He notes that unlike previous guidances and guidelines, this document offers an affirmative consensus on the screening of patients with type 2 diabetes, an important step forward in recognizing the breadth of the prevalent patient population and the range of ways that NAFLD can affect overall health. Jorn Schottenberg joins the conversation to suggest that this document offers an excellent look at how the field is moving forward. In particular, he commends Table 7, a summary of key concepts to guide clinical practice, as a particularly helpful point of reference for the latest recommendations. I agree, highlighting four bullet points embedded in this table, which are dubbed pearls for the assessment of NAFLD. Ken notes that this document will rectify some confusion from past guidelines with special value for primary care professionals who may not be familiar with the field, but whose role is expected to grow dramatically over time. One key point, the role of frontline treaters will not be simply to screen for fat in the liver, but to identify patients in high-risk subgroups with clinically significant fibrosis. He notes we can support these patients today through a combination of lifestyle interventions, currently available anti-obesity and diabetes medications, and, if necessary, bariatric surgery. These new practice guidelines represent one more positive step in the ongoing process of creating standards for how to diagnose and treat patients living with NAFLD and NASH. This episode explores the next major publication in the ongoing stream of new information and education, and an important one at that. So, sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. This is a guidance, not a guideline. And in fact, the document takes some care at the beginning to explain the difference between the two. But Ken, since you were a key player throughout the process and one of the listed authors on the paper, I would love for you to take a couple of minutes and talk about A, how it came to be, and B, what the difference is between a guideline and a guidance, and then why now? Ken Cousy. Well, the last version of the guidelines where I was a co-author was in 2018. So this was work done in 2017. And Yorn and Louise would agree that... In five years, a lot has happened. Mostly good things, some letdowns by drugs that we had at high expectations, but others are in the pipeline and coming. But I think it was a lot that, for example, being in that committee at the time, we couldn't reach an agreement on whether to screen all people with type 2 diabetes. I think study after study have convinced us that that's probably the low-hanging fruit. People with obesity and diabetes that are at the highest risk in every study. There's been a maturing of the field and the importance, at least in this group. And then we also include people with obesity and metabolic syndrome, but again, probably the lower rate. Perhaps the greatest achievement has been to put a group of very respected leaders from the hepatology field. There was also an endocrinologist, Dr. Barb, who's an associate professor here at the University of Florida, and also gave a little bit of the uh, endocrine insight. And I, I think that if anything, the greatest success has been its consistency with the prior work that we've been talking about in this podcast with the ACE guidelines, with the effort that Jordan has participated also in the American Gastroenterological Association. So it's one of those rare situations where kind of the field feels comfortable that we have an, not the greatest test, uh, but a first test too. And there's a more of a consensus to go out and go after those at the highest risk. So in the background, there's mentioned to the pathogenesis, there's a nice figure that I recommend 
the listeners to go figure one about the pathogenesis of the disease includes, you know, the known suspects of overnutrition, inflammation, insulin resistance, and what these pathways mean. But I think more meaningful for the primary care doctor is where they summarize the pathway that goes through FIB4, again, with the known cutoff of 1.3. And then the second test, again, relies on uh, elastography and in its absence, health, and then goes down to the pathway very nicely for what hepatologists and gastroenterologists should do as they are going to be getting, hopefully, uh, large and appropriately referred patients with presumable advanced fibrosis. So I'll stop there because I know there's a lot to talk about, but that would be my introduction, I would say. Jörn Schattenberg. Yeah, I, I think this was a great uh, introduction, Ken. And it was about time. This guidance was eagerly uh, awaited for. It took some time. The first time I heard the presentation given by Maru Ranilla, who's the first author on this, was at ASLD. Um, so I already had got a taste on some of the details that are in there. And I feel the authors felt comfortable moving forward, providing some information, some emerging data that might have made it into a full guideline because not all the evidence is quite as strong to support it, but there's some some details here that I think will help us. I'm talking to specific, you know, numbers and change of ALT, for example, that number is probably not going to uphold to the exact number, but it shows you the direction the field is moving. And, and as such, I think it's a very nice document to move forward with. And um, in case any listener wants to shortcut our conversation, which of course they shouldn't, uh, I felt table seven was pretty uh, comprehensive because it has all the key findings, again, still stretched over three pages, but uh, if you want to give it a quick overview of the current guidance, I think that table really summarizes most most of the key uh, recommendations. And again, uh, congratulations to the authors and you as a reviewer here. Uh, I think it's a useful and interesting document we'll be able to work with for some time. Well, there were several reviewers, okay? So I'm just a little piece of a big, big picture of people. I, I think that it streamlines things, you know, puts a lot of big concepts into context. Uh, you know, you mentioned you know, the ALT that we consider would be abnormal is when that's above 30, not 40. I mean, concepts that many people can have NASH with normal liver enzymes. And then the CAP cutoff, which they prefer to use the MR-PDFF cutoff of 288 rather than the histological one, which is a little bit lower. They mentioned that cardiovascular disease is a great concern. Non-liver malignancies are a problem. They talk about alcohol too, and we can discuss that a little bit later. So there's a lot of little pearls, you know, statin use, you know, and people who have NAFLD. Yeah, I was kind of doing the mental checklist as I was reading it, and ALT and statins were two of the things that I was curious to see how they were handled. It strikes me, and I like your use of the word pearls, Ken, in the middle of Table 7, which you aren't just commended, are four bullet points that they call pearls for the assessment of NAFLD, and the first two are about ALT, the third is about ultrasound being unreliable, and the fourth is about CAP uh, the VCTE and then MRI PDFF. In a nutshell, that really did boil it down, didn't it? Yeah, so so it boils down to, it, it's trying to uh, rectify some confusion from past guidelines. Where do we put the ultrasound? And I think in these past five years, it's clear that most people with obesity or type 2 diabetes, maybe 70% or higher, you have a higher BMI, already have fat in the liver. And this is again for the primary care doctor that may not 
not be familiar with this field, really we're screening not for fat in the liver. We're just using fat as a surrogate to go after liver fibrosis. And what we're looking for is to, to identify those people with moderate to advanced fibrosis. We call clinically significant fibrosis. So that is really the main goal because there are things we can do today with lifestyle and, and Luis knows a lot about that and some anti-obesity and diabetes medications. And we hope that this year we'll have the first FDA approved drug to treat that. So important things and trying to focus on a couple of tests and move it from there. And in the future, I'm sure in a couple of years, we're going to get a better frontline test. But this is just to build awareness and a routine in the non-specialist. So Jarn and other pathologists can do a good job when it's still timely. Yeah, now that we're cracking down a little bit on the details, I saw at one point that the guidance talks about um, F2 till F4 patients that do have uh, increased uh, risk of associated complications, which is, I, I tend to call it significant, at least significant fibrosis. A lot of the NIT talk is about excluding advanced fibrosis then again. And I think that's one of the challenges we are facing in the field. We're talking about the advanced fibrosis, but also maybe the patients that are a little bit before that, also at risk. And then an area that I think will particular more data and discussion is also the follow-up data using these NITs. And we're currently having um, FIP4 being repeated every one to two years in here. And um, I think that speaks to the evidence we have that patients are progressing, but for sure, not everybody is progressing. So we'll probably in future years learn more who, who needs more intense follow-up versus those who don't need intense follow-up. And I'm not sure how much of a discussion that was, but the follow-up timelines are, of course, not as well substantiated with evidence as are the diagnostic uh, criteria, I would say. Louise Campbell. I have to say, I thought this was a beautifully written guidance. I thought it was easy to follow. I thought it was quite succinct because sometimes we can go over-medicalise some of these guidance and they're very difficult to read. And in fact, when I was reading it, I had Maru reading it in my head. So it was her voice I heard it in, which was entertaining. It does make it a lot easier. I think we've discussed a lot on here about perfection is the evil side of it and it prevents good. And I think what this has done is draw all of the common themes in to allow it to be practical from vitamin E to pyoglitazone to what we've got now that we know can help help people. So I thought they did a brilliant job of doing that. Also, from my perspective, there are lots of areas where I can look at quality areas to improve, just local areas of care, look in the pathways. So that made it nice. The UK's nice guidance on NAFLD was 2015. So after eight years, we really have come a long way. And I should suspect following access to fibre scan in the community, it is about time that we updated our guidance because they are now so way out. And this will be a very, very good framework for that. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next week to discuss digital therapeutics and apps and their place in health practices in the U.S., the U.K., and other countries. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.